So welcome, Amanda. Thank and you. Let's let's get into it. Um, there is this story that we tell ourselves about the history of habeas that it began with John at Runnymede and the signing of the Magna Carta. And I want to start by asking you what part of that is myth and what part of it is true? And what's the real, if we treat habeas as a superhero, what's the real origin story of the, of the superhero? I like, I like the idea of treating habeas as a superhero. Uh, but it's a very complicated story. It's a story that is not as simplistic as I think most people conceive of it as. Um, it doesn't start on Runnymede per se. That is a part of the story. But it's uh, not the whole story. And a lot of people today think about habeas purely as a procedural right. And that, I think, is part of this, what, what I think we can call, in part, a myth that connects habeas to uh, Runnymede and Magna Carta and the generic idea of due process of law, which comes out of Chapter 39 of Magna Carta. But it's really not that vital an instrument for protecting individual liberty until the 1600s. That's when everything changes. OK, so let's start with, like, it did not happen that, you know, the nobles make John sign the Magna Carta, and it says there's habeas, and forever after there was habeas, right? So what, what is the relationship between the Magna Carta and habeas? Magna Carta sets in motion a series of developments and establishes the idea of due process as we uh, have built the Anglo-American legal tradition on, or on which we have built that tradition. But again, due process had to evolve. And a lot of larger developments and very important developments had to marry with that backdrop. So importantly, in the early 1600s, there are a number of famous cases. The most famous of, of all is the case of the Five Knights, otherwise sometimes called Darnell's case, which really rings, uh, brings home the point of how due process had to evolve. Because in that case, Charles I had been cut off financially, and he uh, wanted to continue to pursue the Thirty Years' War. Parliament wouldn't give him any money. So he tried to get all of the English nobility to fund the war for him. Many refused, and he threw five knights in Fleet Prison. When they argued, uh, or I should say John Selden argued for them, that this was illegal and that due process derived from Magna Carta had a very particularized meaning in this setting, Selden argued due process required criminal indictment and presentment uh, and speedy trial, the Court of King's Bench instead looked to the Attorney General's argument, which was the king is the font of all law. And so if he says that they're bad guys effectively and throws them in prison, that's, they got due process of law. And so what you see in the early 1600s is concrete evidence that Magna Carta wasn't doing enough. And that sets in motion the most important developments that follow in the, in the remaining decades of that century. And John Selden is a big figure in that, as is Sir Edward Cook. They push for the petition of right in the immediate wake of the case of the Five Knights. <coughs> and they argue uh, for repudiating the idea that the king is the font of due process or, or the font of the law. They argue for this idea that the king cannot 
arrest and detain people outside of the criminal model, but it takes a long time. And then the crucial moment in the story is 1679 with the adoption of the English Habeas Corpus Act. And this is a huge part of the story of the development of habeas jurisprudence in England and in America. And it's a part of the story that a lot of modern jurisprudence and scholarship, if not all modern jurisprudence and scholarship, largely ignores. All right, so let's talk about that because, um, you know, when we think of the great moments in the development of liberty as we know it, 1679, not on the tip of a lot of people's tongues. You know, we don't, we don't think about it. And I would venture to say that when you think about the great documents of, of in the history of liberty, the 17th century document that everybody thinks of is the English Bill of Rights, yes. right? Not the Habeas Corpus Act. Um, what is it? What does it say? And why have we forgotten about it? So what it is, the English Habeas Corpus Act was part of a movement on the part of Parliament that begins and conti- before and continues after the Glorious Revolution to take power away from the executive and claim it for Parliament itself. And the English Habeas Corpus Act is part of that larger story. It's part of that power struggle. And the idea was to limit executive detention and impose constraints on the royal courts and employ them in a way that they would enforce those constraints on the crown and and enforce constraints against executive detention. And so specifically, among many provisions in the English Habeas Corpus Act, the, the original acts, Section 7, require that for the most dangerous of criminals, including suspected traitors, those who were alleged to commit treason against the crown, they had to be tried criminally within two terms, which during that period, that's three to six months. And if they weren't, then the judges were ordered to discharge them. That was the required mandated remedy. And to put teeth in it, the English Habeas Corpus Act included penalties for judges who did not comply. And so what you get is a very hard and fast rule that the executive cannot detain outside the criminal process those persons who could claim the protection of domestic law. And it's a huge power grab on the part of Parliament, in part because it wants to take control of all things. Um, And they also want to constrain the executive. And the beneficiaries are those who can now claim the protection of the act. And so why, when we look back and we, we think about, I mean, this is a big deal, right? The idea that the executive can't just kind of lock people up without charge. We attach that idea to due process. We attach that idea to... Uh, certain trial rights, right, including the right to have a trial. But it's actually, it has an extrinsic life from that in this statute that we've largely forgotten about or that we've remembered as a feature of Magna Carta three centuries earlier. Why have we forgotten, why has history just kind of erased this particular law. It seems, it, it seems like it kind of belongs somewhere important. 
I think it belongs somewhere very important, and I don't have a good answer for why history has erased it. What I can say is when you look at the founding period and you look at the sources of English law to which the founding generation turned, the key sources, among others, were clearly Blackstone, Henry Kerr's treatise. Uh, they championed the Habeas Corpus Act. They glorified it. Blackstone called it a second Magna Carta. That's a big deal, right? So, so ju ju just to be clear, the erasure takes place between the founding era and now. It's, yes. not, it's not something that the founders were unaware of or, or, had, or had deflected the importance of the Habeas Corpus Act elsewhere. They knew, what the, they, they knew how important it was. It's just we that, that don't know it. I think that's right. And indeed, what I would say is I think the English Habeas Corpus Act was hugely important to the founding generation because they were reading this is a second Magna Carta because the crown leading up to the revolution denied and vetoed effort on the part of colonies to adopt the act for themselves. They were angry. They, they felt as though they were being denied the jury trial right, denied these important protections by the crown, and they talked in a manner of speaking as though they were second-class citizens and very much resented that. And so in the lead up to the American Revolution, it's not, shouldn't be surprising, but we find that the Continental Congress complained specifically about the denial of these protections and levied charges that they were subjects of an arbitrary government. And then when you look around the legal landscape of the states during this period, what you find is a wave of states adopting the English Habeas Corpus Act with the onset of independence, constitutionalizing its protections as, for example, Georgia did in, in its 1777 constitution, Georgia included a provision that says, it, its habeas provision says the protections of the English Habeas Corpus Act are part of this constitution. And then they, they added uh, in the first circulation of that constitution, the state of Georgia included verbatim copies of the English Act, uh, you know, appended to the constitution. It is a central feature of all things habeas at the founding period. Okay, so before we get into the, the transatlantic habeas movement, uh, let's talk about the big exception. Um, the general principle that the king can't lock people up uh, proves unworkable yes. in some sense. And so parliament starts giving itself an out. Um, talk us through what the unworkability was and what the out was, and therefore what the, abs the actual habeas rule was? So it doesn't take long. It takes 10 years, um, 10 years after the uh, adoption of the act. William comes to power in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, and the Jacobites are, are trying to reinstate the Stuart line. And there's a belief on the part of William that the threat to the throne is quite substantial, that it's going to be hard to snuff out. And he is a new monarch who, interestingly, and I think particularly as you take the long lens of history and study him, was very committed to working within the law. And so he sends an emissary to Parliament and says, I need to be able to arrest on suspicion and hold on suspicion people who I think are plotting the demise of the throne. But if I do that, they're going to get out on habeas corpus. 
So I need some kind of proper legal authority to arrest people in this posture. And Parliament responds immediately by creating basically the concept of suspension. And they enact a bill that gives, by its terms, power to the executive to detain on suspicion alone and relieves the executive of having to comply with the English Habeas Corpus Act for a particular period of time. The initial ones are one month, two months, three months. It's only much later that they get longer. But everyone at the time recognizes this is a very dramatic power. So there are a lot of famous quotes. If an angel came down from heaven who was a privy counselor, the privy counselors, of course, were given authority to arrest on suspicion. One member of parliament says, I would not trust my liberty with him for one moment. And everyone recognizes this is a really big deal. This is an extremely dramatic power. And it's invoked repeatedly in the decades that follow to deal with the Jacobite rebellion, to deal with the French, ongoing battles with the French, um, who are working in consort with the Jacobites to try and reinstate the Stuart line. And then it is also employed during the American Revolution. All right. So we have a principle, which is that the king can't just lock you up unless he suspends the rule that says he can't just lock you up. And unless Parliament suspends the rule. Right. So the question is, at what point does the exception swallow the rule? And in English practice, how much was rule and how much was exception? So it's, it's interesting. When you look at this period, a, an important question to ask is why Parliament felt the need to do all of this formally. And I think as you study that period in English history, you see Parliament, and a lot of scholars have written about this, they are trying to be perceived of as making credible commitments across all swaths of law. And this is helping the government financially. It is helping on a lot of different planes. And this is part of that larger story. Parliament is trying to do things by the book. And they're trying to have this formal legal structure in place. The Habeas Corpus Act is in effect, except for when temporarily suspended. And when the suspensions lapse, you see droves of prisoners being released um, in habeas proceedings. Because the, the idea was you charge them and try them in due course, or they will be freed under the Act. And so that's the model that emerges. It is true that Parliament has a few other workarounds, the principal one of which is passing bills of attainder. So there's a famous case detailed in the book of a guy named John Bernardi, um, who may or may not have been involved in a plot to kidnap the king and kill the king uh, in 1696. And they didn't have enough evidence to convict him. So he's originally taken in uh, under the auspices of a suspension. But then when the suspension lapses, he's going to win his freedom. So Parliament passes a bill of attainder to keep him in prison. Just walk us through what a bill of attainder well, is. Well, so it's, it's a law that basically Parliament adjudges him guilty effectively on its own it's without really a trial. It's very convenient. And what's remarkable about this beyond his story and how it connects to American law is that the bill of attainder clause is right next to the suspension clause. So the, just for those of you who haven't read your constitutions recently, the Constitution bans bills of attainder. Yes. It's a very important. And right. it also prevents the suspension of habeas corpus using the word suspension, except when in circumstances of invasion or insurrection, it's required by public safety. 
I'm so sorry, go on. So what's interesting about this period is that Parliament is in taking this power away from the crown is still trying to operate within the laws it understands it and to do things formally in that way. So, all right, now we come across the Atlantic and when you read this history and you read the text of the Constitution for the reasons that I just said and, and a bunch of others, the relationship between this history and the text of the Constitution is really, really clear. Um, the rule as the founding generation and up through the Civil War generation would have understood habeas is what? The, the Bill of Attainder is not available. Not available. Right. So what is the rule as they would have understood habeas corpus? The rule is derived straight out of this English legal model. In particular, what we see during the American Revolution when we have suspensions in the states that suspend the English or suspend the Habeas Corpus Act in many cases by its terms. The rule that we see when George Washington is president and confronts the Whiskey Rebellion. The rule that we see when Jefferson is president and it's confronting the Burr Conspiracy. The rule that we see even through the Civil War with, with some asterisks is that you cannot arrest and hold someone who can claim the protection of domestic law, someone who is deemed to owe allegiance outside the criminal framework for national security or criminal purposes in the absence of a valid suspension. That's the rule. And it's a very formalist rule. That's why people today don't like it. Um, that's why I think there's a drive to look at a looser sort of due process idea. I'm sure we'll talk about that as we continue talking. But that was the rule. And are there exceptions to the rule? So the only exception uh, that was debated was who gets to declare a suspension. And that's obviously the big issue of the Civil War. But importantly, as the British viewed the Americans during the American Revolution, Lincoln and the Union viewed the Confederates during the Civil War as people who owed allegiance. They were not in the service of a foreign enemy. And that meant that Confederate soldiers, same as American rebels during the American Revolution, could claim all of these protections. And that meant you needed a suspension to hold these people outside the criminal process. All right. So let's, let's talk about some exceptions that are, uh, you know, present but not present, right? So one is that the strictures of what could count as a valid criminal law were dramatically looser then, right? So you could, for example, if you were uh, in the 1790s, lock up all the, uh, the Republican uh, printers uh, on substantive grounds without suspending right. habeas corpus just by passing the Alien Sedition Acts and locking them up, right? Um, similarly, the Logan Act is now much in vogue talking about the Logan Act. And when you look at the Logan Act, it's passed roughly in the same period. Um, what the elements of the offense are would not stand, you know, would not withstand scrutiny of, of a modern statute. So how much of the alleviation of the rigor of the, of the rule that you're describing 
lies in just Congress passing vague laws and enforcing them against the sort of people that you would want to lock up without charge. And so you just have these vague statutes that you can kind of apply to almost anybody you don't, you really, the president really doesn't like. And then the problem that this very strict understanding of habeas would create kind of goes away. So there are strands of that story in this history. Um, during the Civil War, it's, it's no great secret that the First Amendment wasn't exactly robust and speeches got you in trouble. Um, but when you look at various periods in American history, early American history, during some of the same time periods and, and window that you're discussing, where there wasn't a suspension, you do see both executive officials and courts insisting on working within this framework and not abusing the, or pushing the proverbial envelope in the way that you suggest. So for example, in the Whiskey Rebellion, George Washington orders his military officials, you are to work within the courts, you are not to abuse your power, we are not in this for military detention. He never even conceives of suspending or claiming that authority. And that's what follows, and judges release people because they aren't charged, and we don't necessarily see abusing, an abuse, excuse me, of the criminalization, if you will. What we also see, for example, during the Burr conspiracy, is Jefferson does push the envelope initially and has uh, a number of principals arrested and held in military custody. But he goes to Congress and says, I need a suspension to keep holding these people. Congress uh, refuses. The House votes down the proposal after the, it sails through the Senate. And in the critical days that followed, the Jefferson administration regroups charges the principals criminally, moves them into civilian custody. They work, again, within the law instead of trying to push the boundaries. And he definitely wanted to, mm -hmm. but he worked within the law. And I think that's a really important historical lesson. So the part of this story that is famous and everybody knows is this question of who gets to do the suspension, right? right? Is it Congress or is it the president? Um, that is tested in the Civil War era. Lincoln kind of gets away with it, but ultimately goes to Congress. And everybody's kind of agreed that an executive suspension isn't OK after that. So in your view, does the rule survive the Civil War? Or is it, does it not survive the Civil War because Lincoln says and I don't know, about a year and a half, gets away with a kind of executive-only suspension. The basic rule, does it survive the period? So it does and it doesn't. Uh, it's a good almost two years before the Civil War Congress finally passes legislation. What's interesting about that is they debate it quite actively through that whole period. And the debates are very sophisticated, very much full of debates about the history that precedes that period. There's a real appreciation for this model and how it works, but they drag their feet. And, it, and there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem there because there's no urgency because Lincoln's going ahead and doing it anyway. And, and very quickly into the war, he declares a nationwide suspension on his own. So. It does and it doesn't. What do I mean by that? I mean that Lincoln believed he could not arrest Confederate soldiers or sympathizers without having a suspension in place. 
So that part of the model survives at least through the Civil War and Reconstruction when we actually see another suspension that Grant invokes to help combat the Klan and promote civil rights, interestingly enough. But the other part, and the part to which you refer, of Lincoln claiming the power for his own sets us on a different, a different course going forward. And I think that's part of the explanation for what we see in the 20th and 21st century, where we see an executive claiming broader power than historically this model gave the executive for dealing with these kinds of wartime problems. All right. So this brings us to, I'm going to skip over a few years here. We're going to go to the World War II era. I'm going to come back to the World War I era after we talk about the contemporary period. But you attach a lot of importance to the internment of the Japanese Americans during, during World War II. When most people think about uh, the Korematsu and Endo cases, they are not thinking about the suspension clause. Right. Um, so tie this into a package that makes sense. Why, why is this uh, period really about habeas? So it's not, but that's the story. It should be. A lot of prominent government officials, when internment was first proposed, highly educated members, well-trained lawyers in the administration said you cannot intern citizens. I just want to, just want to, interesting historical curio, that included J. Edgar Hoover. Yes. <laughs> not, not normally thought of as a hero of, of civil liberties, but there you go. He, Hoover was quite adamant that there was no factual support for any, I, any need to intern Japanese Americans. He said there, there are a handful of bad people out there. They are under surveillance. There is no need for any of these policies, and he said that repeatedly. The Attorney General of the United States, Francis Biddle, who, interestingly enough, was the son of a law professor and had an ancestor who had made... Uh, important arguments during the ratification debates about the suspension clause. He said immediately when this was proposed, this is unconstitutional, it will violate the suspension clause. The Secretary of War clearly understood that this would violate the suspension clause and worked within this framework in dealing with problems in Hawaii where there was a suspension in the Hawaiian territory during the war. Other officials in the Justice Department recognized this, but the policies wind up getting rolled out anyway. And so the story of World War II is that the suspension clause is central to all of this, but it winds up not mattering to the government officials who are making these decisions or the ultimate government officials who make these decisions, the War Department, the President. And then ultimately when these cases spill into the courts, it doesn't matter there either, in particular in the Supreme Court. Right, so let's talk about that. I mean, the case, the case that you talk about the most is Endo, but... Let's talk about first Korematsu, right? Um, the Supreme Court confronted by this internment, which under your vision, your historical vision of the habeas rule, should be a really easy case, right? There is no suspension affecting the coastal areas of the United States, not by the president, not by Congress. 
there are a lot of people who were uh, in the language of the time, excluded in the language that we would use, locked up. Um, first of all, why isn't it char is, why isn't it argued as a suspension clause issue? And secondly, why does the Supreme Court not even talk about it as a suspension? So in Endo, the lawyer did raise the suspension clause and relied heavily on the Milligan decision, which was a decision decided right after the Civil War on which the Supreme Court had held that an individual who was tried by a military commission in Indiana, the, the court specifically in Milligan held the trial was unconstitutional because he had been denied the classic protections of citizenship and the criminal process that were his birthright, the court says, uh, trial by jury, etc. And the court went on also in Milligan to say, and the suspension that's in place under the specific terms of the Civil War suspension, which had various conditions, he also is not being lawfully detained. You can't just keep holding him under that. So Milligan's a really important decision in this line. And the lawyer who represented Endo argued and relied heavily on Milligan to argue uh, that her detention violated the suspension clause. As he put it in one of his briefs, uh, if you can't try somebody because they have all of these rights and you can't hold them, doesn't Milligan completely control this case. This, this is, to borrow from you, an easy case. What's interesting about the Endo case as it unfolds is the government's brief, which was authored by, among other people, Herbert Wexler, does not even engage in this argument. It instead just tells a story, a narrative, of how the military regulations were implemented. It's almost purely factual in nature. It doesn't engage with these arguments at all, almost as if to imply that they are worthless, they're frivolous. And it's when the court takes up the case, I think they view it as a hot potato that they just want to make go away. And one of the things the government had done throughout the litigation of the case was offer her release and therefore concede that she was loyal. She stayed in the camps for two extra years to keep her case alive knowing that it was the only case that directly challenged the internment. Korematsu and Hirabayashi involved curfew issues, exclusion issues. They were intimately related to the internment, but they were uh, matters that came up before you reported to the relocation centers or the assembly centers from which you were then sent to the relocation centers. So she knew the importance of her case. And this young woman who was separated from her family, put in different camps, had a brother fighting for the U.S. Army, she says, no, I'm going to stay. And she stays two more years almost. And all of this goes in front of the Supreme Court, and the court is looking to make it go away. And so they chart the narrowest possible course to give her a win, and they tip off the White House before the decision comes down so that the White House, the day before the decision comes down, can announce that it's closing the camps. So on the ground, it's an important decision because it does result in the closing of the camps, and that is significant. That's a huge win. But in terms of the long landscape of this area of the law, it's a, a missed opportunity, and I think it's part of the story of how this history, to come back to one of your earlier questions, gets forgotten. Because that was an important opportunity for the court to say, this is what this clause that nobody ever talks about in our Constitution actually means. This is what it was supposed to do. And they, they miss that opportunity. They don't say that. 
they decide the case by saying that the military regulations do not allow detaining people who the government concedes are loyal, and therefore Indo wins. But they don't actually really hold anything. All right. So now let's fast forward post 9-11. There's not a whole lot since between, between Endo and Endo, which is not a suspension clause case, and you argue should be, and 9-11, there's not a lot of suspension clause jurisprudence. No. Um, there's a lot of habeas jurisprudence, but it's almost all in the form of collateral attack on, post, on, on convictions, right? Which is, which is pretty far from what the historical habeas is, right. is really about. Um, now we start capturing people who the government contends are Al-Qaeda members or affiliates. Some of them, in very small numbers, are US citizens. In even smaller numbers, they are captured domestically. Mm -hmm. I think the smaller, that smaller number is a universe of one. Uh, so we're talking very small numbers. But um, the numbers of people who are held, who claim the protection of, of the suspension clause, claim the protection of habeas, is not that small. It's thousands of people at Bagram, hundreds of people at Guantanamo, and um, and a large group of lawyers who want to litigate on all of their behalves. Uh, how did the court think about this in relation to suspension, and how should it have thought about it in relation to suspension? So that's a big question, right? There are a number of cases that come to the Supreme Court in the wake of 9-11, the big ones, in my view, that go to the heart of these questions are the cases of Jose Padilla, the American who was an American citizen picked up in Chicago's uh, at O'Hare, um, returning from a trip. Yasser Hamdi, who was uh, taken into custody in Afghanistan by the Northern Alliance, turned over to American forces, eventually moved to Guantanamo Bay, and then held domestically after that. Uh, and then the Boumediene case. So, uh, there are a lot of prominent people who distinguish between Padilla's case and Hamdi's case because of the point of capture. And, it, and just, just to be clear, Padilla is captured at O'Hare Airport trying to come into the United States. Hamdi is captured in theater in Afghanistan. He's a Saudi American who shows up in Afghanistan and joins a Taliban unit. So... A lot of people, as I've said, have differentiated between the two. They're both citizenship cases or citizen cases because of the point of capture. But by the time the government brings Hamdi to the United States and he's on domestic soil, I think any arguable distinction vanishes, at least if we look historically. Because historically, Hamdi's case looks just like the Jacobite supporters who were captured on the high seas beyond the reach of the English Habeas Corpus Act, who the moment they set foot on English soil can now invoke the English Habeas Corpus Act. That's why they needed to have suspensions to hold those people if they couldn't try them. That was how the model worked. And so if you look historically, you can find 
perfect analogies, well, nothing's perfect, but strong analogies between the Padilla case and historical episodes because he's, he's picked up domestically and held domestically and labeled an enemy combatant and held outside the criminal process without a suspension. But also Hamdi, because the minute he's brought to United States soil, at least historically, that becomes an easy case. Where things get complicated is when you go beyond that. And what I've just said is very controversial because, uh, and, and I'll dwell on that for a moment before talking about Guantanamo Bay, because obviously the Supreme Court doesn't agree with anything I just said. Yeah, so, so, let, so let's, let's, before we go on, let's break that down a little bit, because what the Supreme Court said in Hamdi is there may be a question about whether he actually is an enemy combatant, and he gets to litigate that question. The government's got to give him a reasonable process for that. But if he is an enemy combatant, uh, they get to hold him until the end of hostilities. And there were, uh, there were depending on how you count, um, five or maybe a few, maybe seven votes for that basic idea with, with whatever level of process. Um, why is it wrong? So I think it's wrong because traditionally citizenship and allegiance were really, really important. And they were bound up with this idea that is at the heart of the suspension model that I think the framers consciously imported into and constitutionalized in our suspension clause that gave the government hard choices, even in times of war. So Justice Jackson famously calls the suspension clause the only express emergency provision in the Constitution. And I think this is why. It's an on-off switch that has to deal with, or that addresses individual liberty in extreme emergencies. That's a phrase that Blackstone used. It should only be warranted in extreme emergencies. And in the discussion of the suspension clause that Hamilton has in the Federalist Papers, he quotes from that passage and he says, this is the idea. This is a really big deal to hold people who can claim the protection of domestic law outside the criminal process. The criminal process is how we test the legality of detention, at least for people within our community. And it's different if we're in a declared state of war with a foreign country and we pick up some of their prisoners during time of war. So for example, the English treated the French differently than American rebels. They dealt with them through the law of nations and held French prisoners in the American Revolution as prisoners of war. But the Americans were, they were rebels, they were traitors. And if you want to hold them outside the criminal process, you have to suspend. And for all those Americans who were brought to England during the Revolution, that's what Parliament did. They didn't have to do it for those held here because they had denied operation of the act here. But what, when you translate that to the cases of Hamdi and Padilla, they are virtually on all fours with that model. And if that was the core purpose, the animating driving purpose of this particular provision in the Constitution, then the opinion for the plurality in Hamdi that says, no, actually, we can do this. We're going to come up with some kind of procedure to ascertain whether you're an enemy combatant. And then you can be held. We have now completely abdicated, abdicated using and invoking that model. And that raises the question, OK, well, what does the suspension clause do now? And what's interesting about the Hamdi plurality, written by Justice O'Connor, 
is she doesn't talk about any of this historical material, even though the dissent by Justices Scalia and Stevens invokes a lot of it. Right, it gets, it gets to a lot of what you're talking about. A lot about. of it. And she does not address it at all, and instead looks to a body of case law developed very recently having to do with modern due process issues, in, specifically in the context of removing government benefits, which is a sign of how the due process case law has evolved and part of this larger story of how we've forgotten everything before. Because due process, as John Selden argued it in the case of Five Nights, was the rights and protections associated with criminal prosecution. But all of that at the end of the day means that Hamdi if we continue to adhere to it, and it's a fractured opinion, so it's a prime target for reconsideration, and I would urge it be, to be reconsidered. But if we adhere to it, what we're left with is the question, what is the suspension clause doing that the due process clause isn't already doing, and or what's left of the core meaning of the suspension clause? Okay, so before we turn to Boumediene, I want to probe you on two questions related to this. The first is, you know, everybody talks about the Kirin case and the Germans mm -hmm. in World War II. I want to talk about Germans in World War I. Um, and as far as I know, I'm describing a null set here, which is why I'm using it. Okay. Um, but imagine that among the many German POWs that we pick up in World War I are some U.S. citizens. Very plausible, uh, almost certainly happened. We held a lot of Germans during World War I. Um, and imagine some of them sued, saying, there was no suspension as applied to me. Um, do you believe that the Supreme Court in 1916 would have applied the historical rule that you're describing and said, hey, the substantive law here is suspension. The authorization for the use of military force in the context of the declaration of war against Imperial Germany doesn't authorize the detention of a US citizen absent a suspension. Therefore, either charge this guy who you have nothing on except that he you know, happened to be wearing a, an Imperial German uniform or let him go. Would they, is that the rule they would have applied in 1915? That's a really great question. I think as a predictive matter, it's hard to see that the court would have done that. And, and that's because the Supreme Court in the middle of war doesn't have a great track record. But it would have been the right rule. If and it would have been a closer question than it was by? By World War II, absolutely. And I will say that this issue did arise and was litigated in at least one case during World War II called Enri Torito. Right. And that's a case on which Justice O'Connor relies in Hamdi, where you had an Italian-American dual citizen. There's a great article by Jess Braven in the Wall Street Journal about the background of this case, um, if you're interested. But he litigated saying, you can't hold me as a POW in the United States because I'm an American citizen. And the Ninth Circuit said, yes, we can. We can treat you under the laws of war. And while that's an understandable approach, it, it is at war with the original idea 
and the right. original framework that so, informed the suspension clause. So I asked about World War One because by World War Two, I think for you, you can argue completely consistently with your thesis that the ship has sailed because of right. Endo, and so by the time the Ninth Circuit rules in Torito, you know maybe we'd already forgotten the basic right. rule and sort of only Justice Scalia and and Stevens remember it kind of leaping over that period. But the reason I'm interested in World War I is it, it, it cuts through some of that. Right. Um, so you're, but what you're saying is you're not confident they would have applied the rule, but you know what the correct rule was. What I'm saying is I'm not confident they would have applied the rule because the Supreme Court doesn't have the greatest track record in the middle of active war. Yeah. They do much better in the immediate wake of war. So Milligan, Duncan after World War II, uh, they get much more active and involved in the war on terrorism as the years unfold, right? This is, this is sort of standard. During World War II, you get Quirin, you get Indo, you get Korematsu, you get Hirabayashi. Uh, Hirabayashi, just to take one example, not the Supreme Court's finest hour. In that case, the court openly questions the ability of Japanese Americans to assimilate into American society. So we're, we don't see greatest hits in the middle of war. But, but I take your question, and I like the temporal nature of it, because it's a question about when, when are we forgetting all of this. And what I would say is I, I think this model was likely well-known during that period for a number of reasons. There are contemporary events, including, for example, the Palmer Raids, where citizenship is really, really important to how uh, people are treated during those periods, uh, during that period, excuse me. And then I would go up to World War II and come back to the government officials, like Biddle, who hadn't forgotten the suspension clause even by then. They immediately invoke it as internment is proposed. And so there is still this continuation of this knowledge. It's, the turning point really is World War II, where it's raised, and for whatever reason, we just sort of move ahead. And then Endo, the, the grand opportunity to revive this knowledge and this history, is a lost opportunity. All right, so second question. The formalistic nature of the rule gives rise to a very admittedly sneaky, um, but I think potentially effective legislative response. And I'm, I'm, if, if I were legislative counsel and I were afraid that the court might be attracted by your argument, I would simply say whenever Congress, whenever you pass an AUMF, pass with it, a suspension as to US nationals who are meaningfully allied with the other side. It can be one line, you know, Congress authorizes all necessary and appropriate force against so-and-so and suspends habeas corpus to US citizens fighting, as pertains to US citizens fighting on behalf of so-and-so. Does that, does that formalistic solution entirely solve the problem that you're describing? No. Why um, not? It's Congress doing it, not the executive. Right. It's an invocation of the suspension clause as to 
only people who owe allegiance. What's the problem? What's missing from it? So the all, what I would add is that in terms of the procedures and the structure, yes, Congress should make this decision. It's an incredibly dramatic and important decision. It's a good thing that we have rarely had suspensions. I don't. I'm not pro-suspension <laughs> by any means. Uh, it's it's a very dire set of circumstances. But the caveat or the response to your proposal that I would come back to is a point that I made in the very first article I wrote on this subject, which is our courts have to police the boundaries of the exercise of this power. That is a controversial proposition in some quarters, but I think it is crucially important. And as I dug into the founding era evidence, I found a lot of support for this proposal. The idea that one, we're only going to allow suspension in the most dire of circumstances, the most extreme. So it's heavily cabined in the language of the suspension clause to cases of rebellion or invasion where the public safety may require it. Uh, beyond that, it's a big deal. It's such a big deal that several states voted against the second half of the suspension clause. They wanted the clause to read, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, period. And when you package that with how the founding generation thought about courts in protecting individual liberty, in protecting minority rights, particularly as the Constitution unfolds, increasingly so, it's hard to believe, and indeed there's a lot of evidence against this, that the founding generation didn't expect the courts to play some policing role around abuses of the suspension power. And so that's a very long-winded way of saying that what gives me pause about your proposal and, and my response to it would be Congress can suspend, but they can only suspend constitutionally, and the courts have to be able to police the boundaries there. And since we authorize the use of force in circumstances that are substantially broader than circumstances of invasion or rebellion. Yes. You could imagine a pretty big gap yes. between, between the proposal as, con as, as I'm articulating it and the proposal that the court would actually enforce. Yes. And, and I, 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 I think that's right. And as, as you laid it out, that was my reaction, that there, there's a huge gap, potentially, yeah. between the sweep of the authorization and what could be a valid suspension. I mean, it could get you to Padilla, who was invading, right? But maybe not to Hamdi, who we brought here. I think it's really hard to have it get to Hamdi. And, and I will say, Justice Scalia, who wrote a very powerful dissent in Hamdi that invoked a lot of this history, does include a passage that says... Yeah. Look, if 9-11 if was a rebellion or invasion, that's for Congress to say. I can't second-guess that. And he's got a lot of company to suggest that any invocation of the suspension authority is not subject to judicial review. But I think that's wrong, um, And as both as a matter of looking at what the founders thought, but also as a structural matter when you think about the role of the courts and how big of a deal this is. And I also think, historically, there's a lot of evidence for courts exercising this kind of judicial review. So just to offer one story that I talk about in the book and that I told Justice Scalia when he was alive and he was a little bit flabbergasted by, uh, during the Whiskey Rebellion, the Militia Act then in place required the President of the United States, in this case George Washington, 
to seek certification from a Supreme Court justice before he could call up the militia. And the certification had to provide that circumstances were so dire in a particular jurisdiction that it was necessary to put down the problem with force. And so George Washington goes to James Wilson and says, I want to call up the militia to deal with the Whiskey Rebellion. Will you give me permission, effectively? And James Wilson said, yeah, I've looked at everything. It looks pretty bad. And he certifies the circumstances. Wow. And there are, a lot more, there are a lot more examples of that from the founding period. So I don't think that the founders were uncomfortable with judges second-guessing some of these decisions. Okay, so one more, one more question, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Boumediene does not involve people to who, who owe allegiance to mm -hmm. the United States. Uh, it, oh, it does not involve, the whole conversation about Boumediene is about this strange question about the territorial status of Guantanamo. Yeah. Um, how should we have thought about Boumediene? So for those of you who don't know, Boumediene is the, is the case in which the Supreme Court considered whether there is habeas jurisdiction over the detainees at Guantanamo, and it decided that it did because of some ineffable combination of the close relation, close supervision that the courts, uh, that, the, that the United States was exercising over the facility at Guantanamo. How should they have understood that? It's not classically the rule that you're talking about, right? Because it's not, it's not uh, people who owe allegiance to the United States. It's much more like the French, um, you know, when the British are, are, are uh, dealing with the Jacobites. Uh, so was the right answer to Boumediene to say, heck with them, no habeas? So Boumediene is a complicated case, as I detail in the book, and I think ultimately, and I'll explain what I mean by this, how one thinks about Boumediene is going to be strongly informed by one's methodology of constitutional interpretation. And what I mean by that is that I'm not sure there is a good historical analog. You could argue that the French are the right analog, but a lot of issues that have come up in the war on terror present new par a new paradigm. They present new problems that don't map neatly onto the historical examples that informed the development of this model. So they're not like the French in the sense that we, uh, the British were in a declared state of war with France on various occasions, including during the American Revolution. And so any Frenchman captured was treated automatically as a POW and was protected under the law of nations. And that came with significant protection. So, for example, the French prisoners during the American Revolution were given full rations. The American prisoners were only given partial rations because they were viewed as traitors and they could not invoke all the protections associated with being a prisoner of war under the law of nations. How does that translate onto Guantanamo Bay? It's tricky, and the war on terrorism. There's no perfect mapping with either of the historical models. And that can cut in different directions. And for the Supreme Court justices, it cut in totally different directions. So the majority said, there's no historical analog to this. We're going to throw out history. We're not going to look at it. We're going to talk about the separation of powers. We're going to talk about the fact that the executive 
is for the most part arguing, or this, is, this was the perception of the majority, arguing that no law governs at Guantanamo Bay. And Justice Kennedy, writing for the court, is quite alarmed and exercised by that prospect. He adds in that Guantanamo Bay is like a U.S. territory because there's no other sovereign whose law governs there. And ultimately, that pushes the court in the direction, the majority of five, of saying there's going, there has to be some judicial check on the status determination of these people as enemy combatants. The dissenters, by contrast, say there's no historical analog, end of story, right? End of story, domestic law does not address this. What I say in the book is I think uh, the one justice who lines up with uh, the dissent in Hamdi that I believe is consistent with history and the majority in Boumediene is Justice Stevens. And Justice Stevens' methodological approach is to say the Constitution establishes a floor but not a ceiling. And so I think he would explain his votes, probably, by saying, I agree that the history makes clear that the government cannot go below the floor of arresting people who owe allegiance outside the criminal process in the absence of a valid suspension. But that's not the ceiling. The suspension clause can do other things as well. It can expand. And here he would probably point to the classic common law writ, which served all kinds of different functions. And he would probably say, that that was part of also what the suspension clause meant to embrace, or maybe we should just interpret it that way today. Whereas Justice Scalia, dissenting in Boumediene, says, no, it's, that was a floor and it was also a ceiling, and we shouldn't interpret the suspension clause to go further. So the main point of my discussion of the case in the book is that I think methodology does a lot of work in terms of how one looks at the case and whether one agrees or disagrees. From my perspective, the problem with Hamdi and Boumediene lumped together is that they are both effectively equating the suspension clause in both contexts with some generic modern due process principle that involves balancing the government's interest against the interests of individual liberty. And whatever the benefits or um, you know, support for that in the context of Boumediene, it leads the court down a dangerous path in Hamdi whereby we do go below, in my opinion, that clear constitutional floor. And just to be, this is a great point on which to wrap up. And so just to crystallize that point, how would you sever the concept of, of the suspension clause from the concept of due process? Well, I mean, I, you want to you, you take a meat cleaver and like, you know, cut them apart. What's, what's the work that you want one to do, and what's the work you want the other to do? Well, I don't necessarily come down to take a strong position in the book on this, other than to say the modern due process framework should not be in effect, should not be controlling a case like Hamdi, because that's a case that under the classic model is a very easy case. Again, to come back to what you had said earlier, and by importing due process into that context, we've watered down and basically gutted the modern, uh, the traditional idea that informed the suspension clause and its core purpose. So you want due process to be whatever due process is, but there is, and you can apply whatever balancing tests you want, whatever kind of gauzy modern fancy stuff you want to do under due process. But suspension is a bright line, simple rule that the conditions for are either met or not, and it's not contingent on anything else. 
That sounds very strong, but for the most part, I think that's consistent, at least with respect to cases like Hamdi, with the traditional model that governed all the way up until World War II. And to my lights, if we're going to jettison all of that history based on the pivotal point being the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, that's a huge mistake. And that's just compounding what was a terrible historical episode in this country. The book is Habeas Corpus in Wartime, From the Tower of London to Guantanamo Bay. Amanda Tyler, thanks for joining us. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.